Well, last week we started with, uh, without a lot of fanfare, we, you know, we read the scripture, we lit the candle, we sang a few songs. Well, today we are going to take some time to understand this season and apply the meaning of Advent to our personal lives. Uh, so let's pray and invite the Lord of Advent to lead us this morning. Heavenly Father, we anticipate and we celebrate the advent of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. We ask you to prepare our hearts to receive him and to receive your word about him. Reveal yourself today. Let us hear what you have to say to each one of us. We pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen. We had a short introduction there that hits the main point of waiting. But what is Advent and why do we celebrate it? Uh, the video talked about Advent meaning a coming. Another word for that is an arrival. Is, uh, think about you know, when you are uh, celebrating a special holiday meal. Some of you had family come or friends come for Thanksgiving meal, and uh, you were waiting for their coming. You were waiting for their arrival, and you did so with eager anticipation. You know, Advent is celebrated by churches all over the world. And we wonder sometimes, you know, we get confused. We go, okay, isn't this the Christmas season? What does this have to do with Christmas? Like, what is Advent and what is Christmas and how do they come together? Well, they come together perfectly. And what does it mean to me? Well, it isn't just the pretty candles on the communion table. It's uh, more than gifts and cards and wreaths and as meaningful as all those things are and as beautiful as they are, it's really about Jesus. It's about Jesus coming to us as Savior and about Jesus coming to us a second time, in a second coming in his return. For us, uh, Advent on a personal level is about three things. It's, it's about anticipation, it's about waiting, and it's about preparation. First of all, Advent is about anticipation. The very first candle that we lit here on the Advent wreath last week was the prophet's candle. It talked about all of the prophecies about the coming Jesus. Those of you among uh, wisdom generations, is that a good way to put that? As we get older? <laughs> you might remember a song that was popular back in the 70s. It was a Carly Simon song. It was called Anticipation. And the Heinz Ketchup Company, they co-opted that song and they, they always had a little boy pouring the bottle of ketchup while that song Anticipation played. It was supposed to tell us that their ketchup was so thick because it was full of all this goodness. And you had to wait for it. And when it finally got there, it was worth the wait, you know? Well, anticipation is an important emotion. We all anticipate something, and it can be good or bad. You know, for example, uh, it depends on what you're anticipating. When I was a boy, and I was anticipating being given a punishment, my anticipation took on the form of fear and anxiety. When I was anticipating Christmas, however, it took on a different form. It had a lot of hope in it, and it had all kinds of other really positive emotions attached to it. It's all about expectation. What is your expectation? What do you expect? What are you anticipating? At Advent time, we, we usually sing a hymn, um, or often sing a hymn called, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus. And, and this is the first part. Come Thou Long Expected Jesus, 
born to set thy people free. From our fears and sins, release us. Let us find a rest in thee. Charles Wesley wrote that in 1744. I think it made it to the number one on the hit parade that year. Jesus was long expected, and I mean long. Uh, if you look at the Bible, you will find that uh, Genesis, the very first book of the Bible, talked about Jesus coming right in chapter 3. You know, there's Satan. He thought he won by corrupting the humans. And there's a mention as God sort of prophesies over his new creation and his people. And, and Satan tempted them to disobey God, but, but God says that Satan is going to be defeated by his chosen one, by the chosen one who's going to crush his head and defeat him. Well, from Genesis, we also understand that, that God created a paradise for us, right? A place for the humans to live and interact with him. He created Eden, and he placed us there in the garden. But human sin led to us being expelled. And when I say us, I mean humanity, humans, expelled from paradise, and forced to live a much harder and lonelier existence without the close fellowship of God. God shut the gates so that they couldn't get back in, or any of us for that matter. We, we can't even find out where it is today. We, and it's funny because we have on the map, we know by reference of, of rivers, we know that it, it's, it's between this river and this river and where this one joins up at the bottom and it's somewhere in that triangle and yet we can't even find the door. It's shut to us. You know, the ancient rabbis they believed that God didn't destroy the garden, but kept it for a time when the Messiah would come and restore harmony and order and full relationship with God. In other words, to return us to a paradise that God intended us for in the first place. Through the Bible, we understand that as time progressed, God revealed more and more of his plan for his people. You know, before the New Testament existed, before we understood who Jesus really was, God started telling his people to get ready. And he did that by raising up prophets. Uh, many of them shared some small revelations about Jesus the Messiah, and when you begin to put them together, it adds up to the very large picture of Jesus. Prophets spoke in Genesis. You know, in Genesis 3.15 tells us the Messiah would be born of a woman. Micah 5.2 says he would be born in Bethlehem. Isaiah 7.14 says the Messiah would be born a virgin, from a virgin. Genesis 12.3 says he will be born from the line of Abraham. Genesis 49.10 says he's from the tribe of Judah. 2 Samuel 7.12 and 13 says he'll be the heir to David's throne. They predicted that he would be named Emmanuel spend a season in Egypt. Malachi tells us there would be a forerunner who we later learn is John the Baptist, right? Jesus would be called the Son of God and the Nazarene, and he would speak in parables, and he would come to Jerusalem on a donkey, and all in all, all of these prophecies, some of them were written, some of them were spoken hundreds of years before the arrival of Jesus. It's an amazing thing. Some scholars believe there's as many as 300 prophecies about Jesus. 
And many of these prophecies are so specific that the chance of anybody but Jesus fulfilling them is mathematically impossible. In fact, there's a scholar by the name of Peter Stoner. He's the chairman, or he was the chairman, of the Department of Mathematics and Astronomy at Pasadena College. He was very passionate about biblical prophecy, and he was a mathematician. So he did a project that would calculate the mathematical odds. He got the cooperation of 600 students from InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, and they looked at eight of the more obvious and specific prophecies about Jesus. They came up with some extremely conservative probabilities for each one being fulfilled, and then they considered the likeliness of Jesus being able to fulfill all eight of these main prophecies. Well, the math turned out to be staggering. The chance of anyone at all fulfilling even one, let alone eight prophecies, was huge. To fulfill eight prophecies, the chances of their probability was one in 10 to the 17th power. Now, let me explain what that means. Uh, he gives us an example of silver dollars. He says, suppose we take 10 to the power of 17 silver dollars and we lay them on the face of Texas. They will cover the state two feet deep. Now mark one of those silver dollars and stir the whole mess together and then take a man and blindfold him and let him walk as far as he wants and pick one silver dollar and declare that that's the one. What chance would he have of getting the right one? That's the same mathematical chance that the prophets would have had in writing these eight prophecies and having them all come true in one man. From their day to the present time, provided they were using their own wisdom. There's the hook. We know they weren't using their own wisdom, those writers, those prophets. God spoke to them, to them, and then through them to his people. And all these people, looking at these prophecies and seeing how they began to add up and string together, they began to anticipate him. They began to expect him. They expected him to arrive at any time. Advent is first about anticipation. Well, as the little film suggested, it's also about waiting. Imagine that you know such a person is coming. And you know he's coming into the world, and you know all these things about him, all these predictions that have been made, and he's not here yet. And you're waiting. You know, just because you know someone is coming doesn't make them come, right? It doesn't make it happen. Just as Advent is about anticipation, it's also about waiting. Think about children waiting for Christmas morning. They know it's coming. They're ready for it's coming. They're ready months in advance. You know, you might start hearing them say in July, when well, is Christmas? <laughs> of course, we sometimes do this silly thing called Christmas in July, so that probably doesn't help, but they get anticipating all the way back there, and they get, they're getting ready for Christmas. Can you remember what it was like as a kid? Can you remember that far back? 
Do you remember your own self as a kid and what it was like to get up on Christmas morning and to be anticipating that? You know, when my brother and my sister and I were kids, we, our family, you know, we had a lot of traditions and, and usually on Christmas Eve, we'd have this really nice dinner together. My mom would you know, sometimes make a nice souffle and, and then maybe cherries jubilee. There would be something really special, whatever it was. And then we'd go to church, you know, and we would go to, uh, to a traditional candle lighting service, just like we're going to hold here. And then after service, we might tour around the neighborhood a little bit, and we'd look at all the beautiful lights, and that was always a joy. And finally, we would get home, and home meant straight to bed. Tucked into bed, kind of shut away, enforced. <laughs> you couldn't cross this line or go to this line and no further. You know, you cannot come downstairs while adults are busy getting things ready. And so the adults would be doing the last minute wrapping. Christmas presents would be laid out in three different areas for the three kids. Uh, and some of them would be wrapped and some of them would be just sitting out and the stockings would be stuffed. And of course, we're at our doors listening. Can we pick anything up? Can we figure anything out? What's going on down there? What do you think they're doing down there? Because <laughs> we were also expecting Santa. So it was, it was a great mystery for us. We didn't know what was going on, but we knew it was going to be good, and, and we had to wait, and we were, we were just dying waiting. It was so hard. It was agony. I can remember we'd wake up way too early. I remember hearing my dad walking in the hall once and, and me calling out to him, Dad, is it Christmas yet? My dad yells back, go to sleep. You just went to bed. One time I, I woke up about 3 o'clock in the morning to find my brother who's six years younger than me and we shared a room together. I, I woke up and he was right there in front of my face about six or seven inches away from my face and, and he's got a big grin on his face and he's saying, it's Christmas. I said, it's not. Let's go back to sleep. <laughs> you know, as the pop song says, waiting is the hardest part. But it's usually worth it, most often. Now, I'd like you to shift gears and think about Mary waking up suddenly in the night, and there's an angel standing in her room. Imagine the fear. Imagine how she felt. And this angel says, do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. Now, you know what? Many of those words the angel spoke are right out of those prophecies that predicted the coming Jesus. And so Mary, she knew her Bible. <laughs> and she, she was a righteous person that God, God called her for that reason because she righteously followed God. And she knew what this was all about. I think she would be terrified. Imagine 
after that announcement and waiting. Waiting. What would that waiting be like? Waiting for the birth of her child, knowing that this was the Messiah that everybody in our, her history had been waiting for. And she's carrying this child. They'd been waiting hundreds of years. The enormity of the thing would have been overwhelming. Then Joseph sees the same angel and hears the same message. And, and together they're, they're saying, this really is happening. This is really coming. I think their waiting must have been agonizing as well. But then the child. Then the child, the Son of God, the most amazing child. The waiting is worth it. And I know we don't often think of it this way, but often the waiting is part of the gift. Often the waiting is part of the gift because we learn so much about God and ourselves as we are forced to wait for something or someone to happen. Think about the long length of pregnancy. There are all kinds of things happening during pregnancy, right? There's that beautiful bonding that's starting to happen, even in the womb. There's a time there to learn more about yourself. There's a time there for your husband to learn more about you and your body than he ever wanted to know. <laughs> God's people anticipated this Messiah, this Savior. And God's people waited, and sometimes not very patiently. Sometimes they wandered away in the waiting. And God had to bring them back, and the prophets did that a lot. But finally the Savior came, and Jesus lived and ministered to his people, and he preached about the kingdom coming, and he taught his people how to follow him. And then he sacrificed his life for our sins to be forgiven. Jesus was crucified. Jesus was dead. This Jesus, this Messiah that they had waited hundreds of years had this tiny span and then he was gone. Imagine the disappointment after all that anticipation, all of that history, all of that waiting. And we see that disappointment in Peter's denial. And we see that disappointment in the fact that all the disciples, except for John, ran away. They all went back to fishing because they didn't know what else to do. And then the most amazing thing happened. The Savior who had been put to death was raised from the dead, and he's alive again. The waiting was over, they thought. At least for a time, they were back together with him. The gang was all here, and Jesus was alive again. But then he left again, and he promised to return. There was more waiting. And again, you have an angel involved in that message the angel says, this same Jesus who's been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you've seen him go into heaven. And they waited. They anticipated his return. And today we're still 
waiting. And we are still anticipating his return at any time. Advent is about anticipation. Advent is about waiting. But it's also about preparation. It's a time of preparation. Uh, remember that forerunner that we talked about, that one predicted back in Isaiah 40, verse 3, that we figured out was eventually, we figured it out that it was John the Baptist? Mark quotes that prophecy when he introduces John the Baptist to the story. The voice of one calling, in the wilderness prepare the way for the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. What was John's message, the overall message that he had for the people? It was repent, wasn't it? Repent. Repent as part of the preparation for receiving Jesus. Repent. It wasn't just a message about repentance in a general sense that you didn't have to interact with. It wasn't about, oh, I want to make you feel guilty. I want to give you some remorse. I want to pour that on you until you just feel so emotionally upset that you, you, know, you might answer an altar call or do something. It was more than that. It was a, about radically turning from your sin, choosing to live righteously. People were being baptized as a symbol of that cleansing that God was doing, a symbol of that repentance. Jesus says John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. And now when John comes on the scene, you know, beforehand, Baptism it had been only for converts to Judaism. If you were a convert, you'd go through the baptism, you'd go under the waters, and, and you'd come up out of the waters as, as if you were a brand new person. Your clothes were taken from you, and they were burned, and they put on a beautiful white robe. That was baptism. But John uses it different. John says, prepare ye the way of the Lord. Get ready for him. Get your heart ready for him. Repent and be righteous. Turn to God. Put your face towards God. Well, for us, baptism came to represent identifying with Christ, a death and a resurrection, under the water, out of the water, a new life. Very similar in that idea. But the baptism doesn't change us. It's Jesus who changes us, right? You know, we often say that we want to experience God in a fresh new way. How, how often have you heard that? How often have you said that? I, I just want to experience God in a, in a fresh way. But often we don't do anything to prepare ourselves for that fresh new thing that we want God to do. We can't ask that and do nothing. If my people will humble themselves and pray and turn. We can't just say, God, do this thing in spite of me. Do this thing without me. Do this thing, this fresh new thing. Pour out your fire on the church and then all over the nation and just convert the whole nation. Wouldn't that be cool? But it doesn't happen without you. It is not going to happen. 
We have to prepare. We need to pray. We need to align our hearts with God. We need to surrender. We need to give to God. We need to ask him to be our Savior and our Lord. Maybe all over again. Maybe that's become cold to you. Maybe that's become secondary to you. Maybe that's become something that we said once, and it was fire insurance. <laughs> Kept us out of hell. But we're waiting, like the coming Jews, we're waiting for the Messiah. Jesus has already come. And if we've asked him to be Lord and Savior, he's come into your heart. But we're waiting for now his second return and the fulfillment of his kingdom that he preached all about. And this really is our time for eternity with him. Today I would call on you to just do a few things. One of those is prepare your heart for that new work that we want to see him do. Repent from sin. Simple thing. It's not just something I did once. It's something I continually do in my life. Submit to Jesus and give your will to God. Simple, but hard. Living out his teachings and those of the scriptures, that's also how we prepare our hearts to receive the Lord. One day he's coming. We set our table for the guest. Cook that beautiful meal. We're all set. We know they're coming. But we don't know when that knock on the door is going to take place. No man knows the day or the hour. One man, two men working in the field together, one taken, the other left behind. We don't know when, but we do know that he will come, right? And we need to prepare. We're going to pray together. And I invite you to consider some of the things that we've just said. Our communion time, the Lord's Supper, is tied in many ways directly to Advent and directly to Christmas. There are so many elements that cross over. It's just astounding. And we'll talk about some of those on another day. But let's pray. Let's pray and give our hearts to God. Lord, Forgive my sin. I repent from it. I turn from it. I turn my face to you and I ask you to be my Savior. I ask you to be my Lord, the Lord of my life. Search my heart and reveal any wicked way in me. Forgive me and fill me with your Holy Spirit. Empower me to do your will. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. When you came in today, there were small communion cups on the table. If you did not get one of those on the way in, could you stick your hand up and Charlie will come and, and bring you one of those. Just keep your hand up until you get that. And we'll make sure that you can engage. We are uh, an open communion, which means that you do not have to be a member to receive communion. We do encourage you to be a, a follower of Jesus Christ because that's where all of the meaning comes from, all of the symbolism.
The night on which Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it and he shared it with the disciples who were gathered with him for that, that wonderful meal. And we're going to do the same. We're going to break it. We're going to share it. Jesus gave that bread new meaning. Father God, we see in this bread the broken body of your son, broken for us. This is Jesus' sacrifice in our place for our sin. Lord, as we share this bread, a symbol of the broken body, we give you our lives, and we become your body on earth. We ask you to bless and to sanctify this bread for all who eat it. May we honor you as we remember you. In this way, in Jesus' name, amen. On the screen will be the ritual for the bread, and uh, you'll see your part when it comes along. My brothers and sisters, is this bread not the communion of the body of Christ? Then let us take this bread and eat this bread, remembering that he was born to be our Savior. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. Feed on him in your heart and be thankful. The night that Jesus was betrayed, he also took a cup, a cup of wine called the cup of blessing traditionally in the Jewish meal for the Passover. And he took that cup and he blessed it as well. We will do likewise. Eternal Father, we ask you in the name of your son Jesus to bless and sanctify this wine to the souls of all who drink it. We do this in remembrance of the blood of your Son, which was shed for us. May we be your witnesses and always remember him. Fill us with your Holy Spirit, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Friends, is not this cup the communion of the blood of Christ? Then take this cup, remembering, this is the blood of my covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it together and be thankful. We eat the Lord's Supper at the command of our Lord Jesus. We anticipate his return. As we wait in that time, which could be tomorrow or a dozen tomorrows or a hundred tomorrows from now, we keep on following Jesus and we prepare our hearts to receive him by keeping our hearts in his heart and his heart in our heart 
We maintain that relationship with Jesus. We anticipate his coming. And we say, come, Lord Jesus. Amen?